Hey, we're so glad you're uh, here at church. My name's Colby. I serve as one of the pastors here. And um, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, kind of straight through. And we've arrived at the last week of Jesus' physical life on earth called the Passion Week, which parallels uh, the Old Testament Passover. And we've come to a passage where Jesus' authority is questioned. And as a lead-in to that conversation, uh, if you're here and you've got kids or you've had kids before, we uh, acutely understand what is going on in the passage today. Because all of us, as parents, do not want to be the sole arbiter of truth in our household. Here's what I mean. Moms don't want to answer every question. Like, and my wife has repeated this statement of, hey, you have two parents. Go ask your dad. Right? And so we kind of, we want, it's a delegated authority I have as a dad. We want to have a split authority where there's more than one of us um, calling the shots on whether they can have chocolate milk after dinner. Like, we, we don't want to have to be the only person that has to deal with that. Furthermore, as your kids get older, you're going to leave them alone in your house and pray your house doesn't burn down. And so you want your kids to watch your kids. And you're going to get into this scary Lord of the Flies thing where you're going to have to put one of them in charge. And, and when that happens... You're going to start to lay out rules. You're going to say, don't stab one another. No biting. You're going to listen to whatever this kid says and whatever they say, go. Even when you're in the house, what will happen is that authority will bleed over and you will hear your kids, tell me if this isn't true, in other parts of the house debating what dad said. Hey, dad said you don't get any cake. I'm dad, and I never heard that, right? And you'll hear kids quoting your authority in order to convince the other kids what they can and cannot do. And so what will happen is they will become lawyers that begin to debate what did dad say and who has the authority. If one of the kids comes from your presence as an ambassador, they come not saying... I, as the eldest kid, say that you cannot do this thing. What they will say is, Dad said, and then you better listen up. And what they carry with them is the authority of Dad and the judgment of Dad if you disobey. Does everybody understand what I'm saying? This is common dynamics inside a home with more than one. And again, my only children in here, you got no idea what I'm talking about. Right? But if you got siblings, you get it. And so today, the text is going to draw us into a question that I think is, it's the question. Who has the authority? And even this, is Jesus the authority of your life? Is he the authority? Does he call the shots? Does he get the last word? And so, uh, I want to jump into the text, but before we do, let's ask God for his presence and his help. Um, Because left to our own devices, we're just not going to get the text. We're not going to come to a conviction over our sin, repent of it, and turn. Okay, so let's pray and and then get into it. Dear Heavenly Father, we enter your courts with thanksgiving and your presence with praise. Praise is befitting of you because you're the author of this scripture. This is your word. So God, would you come and teach it in your ways. Help my brothers and sisters in here and our friends that are gathered to understand your word. Holy Spirit, come and till the soil of hearts that it might be good ground to receive the seed and the life of your word that it might bear much fruit. God, you're not only the author of this scripture, you're the author and perfecter of our faith. And so, God, would you grow faith in this house? In the young people here, in the parents, in our older saints, would you not make us content 
But God, give us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness that lets us see your word today as honey on our lips, as nourishment for our souls. God, come and make the glories of Jesus crystal clear. The gospel front and center. God, make us wise as your disciples in this wicked and crooked generation. We need your help today, God. And so come and and lend us your grace. Illumine our minds, we pray in Jesus' strong name. Everybody said, amen. If you've got a Bible, I hope you do. Open it to Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 27. The last few weeks, we've had the triumphal entry, and we've asked, has Jesus triumphantly entered into your life and into your center? And what we observed from the temple is that the saints of the Old Testament had abandoned centering their worship on God and had polluted it with greed and consumerism and materialism. And so Jesus had to do the uh, Ray Lewis, Dick Buckus thing and clear the temple because he had zeal for his father's house. And so we talked about this Markin fig sandwich where he curses the fig tree, but it's not really about the fig tree. It's about the broken system of the temple, which had obscured forgiveness and prayer for the nations. And so that context of what we've just discussed in the last couple weeks is important for where we get into today with chapter or verse 27. So let's look at it. Uh, verse 27, and they came to again to Jerusalem. Jesus is returning to Jerusalem. So the context is the cleansing of the court of the Gentiles that just took place. So they came again to Jerusalem, where he had just shop, cleansed the court of the Gentiles, right? And as he was walking in the t- into the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. So I want to pause and go to this. Uh, we got a couple slides up here just to help picture this a little bit. So the first time that you come in and cause a ruckus in the restaurant, the manager is going to meet you at the door the second time, all right? And so he just came in and demonstratively cleared the temple. And so if we got that slideshow up there, um, I want to talk about these three groups that met him. And I would argue that they're a part of what composes what's called the Sanhedrin. Um, Go to the next slide. The Sanhedrin had what was described each of these um, roles involved in it. The chief priest the scribes, and the elders. Let's talk about them for a second. They are highly educated. They are scholarly. Not only that, they are uh, leaders. Um, They are well respected. They are in some ways almost like celebrities. Like you wanted your kids to grow up to be in the Sanhedrin. The chief priests, the scribes, and elders. There was roughly 70 of them. And that goes back to Numbers chapter 11. Where Moses appoints 70 leaders to help delegate his authority. These are literally called the seat of Moses. Where these um, individuals operated like a sort of supreme court for God's people. And they were even more powerful like 200 years before this. Before Rome's takeover. I mean they themselves could order executions and make all kinds of judgments. Now that Israel had been over from Rome, they are the highest authority inside of Israel, but they are overshadowed by the authority of Rome, and that's why we're going to see them appeal to Rome to do the killing of Jesus later on in the Gospel of Mark. But let's just not get this twisted. This group of people, I mean, we don't have an equivalent of it. It's like the most well-respected pastor mixed with a senator that somebody respects, and like a business leader. I mean, it, it is this weird combination of like what, what most of culture would have considered the good guys. But let's push pause here for a minute and let, let's just think about this. Are not the best villains in every single movie that you've seen the ones that are believable? The ones that you can actually relate to. Like 
there's so many things that after Marvel made all the Marvel movies, I think there's like 14,000 of them now, and they, they kind of stretched out Iron Man and they did all of these movies. At the end of the, at the movies is this character called Thanos who is looking at the overpopulation of the universe and he says, if I can just kill half of the population, then life will flourish again. His reasoning and his logic, a lot of people agree with. And it's because that there's people that agree with him. He's a believable villain. The best villains are the clean ones. Not the obscure ones that nobody follows. And so these 70 drew their authority from the seed of Moses in Numbers chapter 11. And that's curious. Because Jesus would even in Matthew chapter 23 in some ways affirm this. He says that they sit in the seat of Moses, and you may have heard this passage before, whatever they preach, listen to it and observe, but don't do as they do. So even Jesus kind of affirms that they have this authority. Furthermore, what they illegitimately had was an oral tradition. They said they had teachings of Moses that were not written down, that only they had, which allowed them to interpret all of the rest of the Old Testament. That's kind of odd. Furthermore, because of tradition, they carried the authority. Now the question that Jesus pushes on is their authority is not to be the final arbiter of truth and replace God. Their authority was to preach what God's word already said. There is a great parallel to what they are in uh, our times today and have been around for a while. It's called the Roman Catholic Magisterium. You may be unfamiliar with Roman Catholicism, but Roman Catholicism draws off this same exact concept of where they get their bishops. And Roman Catholicism will say, instead of the seed of Moses, there's the seed of Peter. They claim an obscure succession from the time of Peter, saying that Peter actually had someone that he appointed as the Pope over Rome. Absolute um, impossible to prove from historical documents that are accessible to all. And that that succession goes all the way down and that that Pope has a sort of authority based on documents that nobody can triangulate. Right? And it comes down. And, and the problem I have with that tradition that comes down is that they don't use that authority to preach like Peter, to serve like Peter, to die like Peter, but to add rules like the seed of Moses. The Catholic, the, the greatest equivalent maybe that we have here is the cat Roman Catholic magisterium. So imagine in all of their pomp, in all of their authority, Jesus shows up to the temple and the Hephes meet him. Now likely, this is not all of the Sanhedrin, all 70. It's probably an ambassador from them and that'll be key for the passage that comes next um, in chapter 12, 1 through 12. But it's an ambassador, it's a, it's a meeting from these people. Let's look at the next slide. This is a picture or a recreation of the temple. The place where the arrow is pointed is the meeting room hewn out of stone. This is where the Sanhedrin would have met in the temple courts. So Jesus has come in and cleared the temple. He kicked the bee's nest. Now the bees are coming out and they're going to meet him out of this room into the gate. So go to the next slide. It'll give you a little bit of a picture of what's inside of that meeting room. This is how the 70 would have gathered. 71 if you count the high priest that would have been here. The little red dot in the square shows you where that was at inside of the temple complex. Go to the next slide. This is an artist's recreation of them gathering to make decisions. Again, you have to understand this as the supreme court of their day. Coming in to question what Jesus is doing. Verse 28. And they said to him, by what, underline that if you can, by what authority are you doing these things? Contextually, the cleansing of the temple. Or, here's another way to phrase that. Who gave you this authority to do these things? Who gave this to you? Listen, here's what the question is from them, and I think... It's a question for us today. This is the question. Who is the authority? 
Who's the authority? They show up and they say, show me your diploma. A lot of us uh, maybe have trades in here or we have certain skills that require a license in order to do that. Show me your license. Show me your certifications. By what authority are you rolling in here telling us how to operate this joint? The other side of that is, by who? Tell me the person and what, what kind of crown they wear. Tell me what kind of position they have that would endow you with the ability to come in and act like you're acting. By what authority or by whom are you doing this? I want to speak to the boss that is co-signing and conferring you the kind of authority that you're coming in here and doing what you're doing. Now listen, I would argue this for our culture is the same exact question. When it comes to abortion and the killing of a child in the womb, who's the authority? Who's the authority? Who calls the shot that you could slaughter that child limb from limb inside the womb? Is the mother the authority? Is the government the authority? Is the child the authority? Who is the authority that determines the value of that life? When it comes to your sexuality, when it comes to homosexuality, when it comes to polyamory, when it comes to um, pedophilia, when it comes to adultery, when it comes to fornication, who calls the shots on human sexuality? Do you see how authority is the question? It's the question. Who call, Who is the... By what authority... Who's in charge here? When our Colorado state legislator is going to vote to allow the murder of children here in Colorado, who are they? Where's their authority from? This question is the question... In Matthew chapter 7, verse 29, Jesus is said to have taught with authority. He's unlike the scribes. Scribes, they teach based off the authority that the scripture... Jesus came like he wrote the thing. Because he, he did. He came teaching with authority and people tripped or were astonished at he, he wasn't like any other teacher. Because he taught with authority. John 14, 10 says, I have my own authority. I'm not speaking on my own authority. The Father, His authority is who I speak on. John 14. Or we could go at the end when He does the Great Commission with the disciples. Matthew 28, 18. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. The argument of the Bible is that Jesus has all authority. And we like to spiritualize that. Yeah, He got all authority in heaven. That verse says... All authority in heaven and on earth. The question of who's in charge for the Christian is definitively answered in Matthew 28 verse 18. Jesus is the authority. And let's be clear about our church. Whether it's our uh, house church leaders, our deacons, or our elders. The final authority in our church is Jesus. And if we, as any form of leadership that comes in this church, come in contradiction to Jesus, you are to abandon this church for the sake of following Jesus. You can amen that. I ain't even going to be offended. Because in this church, we got one king. And he calls the shots. So, I want you to feel the tension of this question they're rolling up, thinking as the authority, we're going to put him in his place by checking his authority. You maybe don't feel how tense this is, so I'm going to try to, here's how I would illustrate it. I know you Christian people have never sped, all right? Except back when you were lost. But imagine being pulled over like one of those heathens, or me about three weeks ago, all right? And you get pulled over, and the police officer pulls you over for speeding. And he comes up, and what, what's the first thing he's going to ask? License and registration. Right? License and registration. What is he doing? 
First off, he's checking your authority. Can you even drive this car? Clearly, no is the answer. All right? I want you to think about how tense the moment would get if he says license and registration and you say, I want your badge number and your social security number. All right? Just next time you get pulled over, just ask for their badge number and their social security number. And then you're going to come back to church and be like, so I did what my pastor said. First time I ever got tased. It was awesome. You know what I mean? They put me in the drunk tank. Hadn't had anything but mouthwash all day. Like, do you understand the idea of when someone who thinks a police officer, thinks they're in authority, come and check your license and registration, and you start quoting habeas corpus and the Constitution about unlawful seizure to them? Now you're having a power struggle about, were you speeding? Well, obviously you had to speed to catch me if I was speeding, so I think we're both in a little bit of trouble. How about we both just walk away? Right? See how that goes for you. See, somebody is actually in authority there. And that's, you could cut the tension with a knife. Do you feel it? By what authority are you doing this? Who gave this to you? Where, what gives you the nerve? Now, this gets into something we've talked about here before, but I think it just bears repeating because of the nature of social media, the nature of many of us at our workplaces, and as Christians, we're a minority in Colorado. Many people are, are trying to intimidate us by merely questioning our faith or whether we can have a valid argument to be in the marketplace or in government itself. And isn't this true? If some people at work merely question you, you can be intimidated by that. The, que- the fact that they're asking you questions at all can be intimidated. You may have been driving the speed limit, but the police pulls you over and asks for license and registration. All of a sudden, you're going to be afraid that somebody hid drugs in your car from the rental place you bought it from. All right? Like, merely asking questions can become an intimidation tactic that people push us. And let me ask you, when people question your Christianity, is there spineless buckling or is there no quit? Because as our culture gets more hostile to the teachings of Jesus... The teachings of Jesus are, the teachings of Scripture are not going to change. Matter of fact, if there's a Bible teacher that comes and says, for 2,000 years, you know, we got homosexuality wrong, and they're going to come, the Bible is there, the track record is there, they're likely a false teacher. The teachings of Jesus are not going to change. Here's what they're trying to change your boldness. Here's what they're trying to change. It's your boldness. And for many of you, if you never say anything, they won't persecute you. They won't mock you. You might not lose your job. If you keep your mouth shut, if you never speak up, if you will only cower, you can get by. You'll get your next paycheck. You never say anything. The early church would have never been slaughtered in the Colosseum if they compromised half as much as we do. But they also would not have seen the glory of God and the spreading of the king, kingdom and lives saved. So choose. When they come to intimidate you with questions... Are you going to fold like an old lawn chair or are you going to hold your ground? Decide now because everybody in our culture is going to have to choose. Amen? I mean, you got a finger on the pulse. Tell me. At the same time, when it comes to these questions that people bring to us, we have to be wise. We have to be wise. Look at what Jesus does. 
Verse 29. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, they are, were afraid of the people for they all held John really was a prophet. Which is, who's folding now? So, they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you what authority I do these things. Okay, so let me, let, let's just... Let's let Jesus disciple us in how to engage the questions of our culture. One thing we have to acknowledge is that some people are not coming with questions to get answers. They're coming to us with questions to get ammo. Some people are not coming because they're genuinely seeking truth. They want to know. And listen, there are people like that in your life. I believe... That as you pray and seek the Lord and seek people of peace, there are people, every single one of us has, that is willing to have a spiritual conversation about the gospel and about Jesus. There are people that are ready to hear truth from you. 100%. There are true seekers. But there are also people people in your life that have no interest whatsoever in truth. They just want to make you look dumb. They want to make you look less And they want to turn you down. And we have to be wise knowing some people aren't looking for answers. They're just looking for ammo. They just want to fight. And I'm the absolute world's worst recovering addict from dying on every single hill. Feeling like i got to answer every single uh, thread argument on a social media thing. Feeling like every single... Um, debate and discussion needs my input. But the wisdom of Jesus goes in this absolutely brilliant way that I want you to follow here. So let's let Jesus disciple us. We've got to be wise here. Here is what Jesus does. He asks them a better question. They have absolutely set a trap for him. And this question is, is in, in the words of Star Wars, it's a trap, right? Like, it's there, all right? Jesus is intentionally going to spring the trap with a better question. Their question misses. So when someone approaches us with a question about Christianity or Jesus or God, and it misses the point, or it misleads, or it doesn't go far enough, or it goes too far, or it doesn't get to really the heart of the issue, we have to be like Jesus And ask them a better question and say, until you can answer me this question first, if you'll answer that honestly, I'll answer what you have to ask. Um, I I heard a pastor talk about this story. I I thought it was absolutely relevant. There was a pastor that got asked to speak at a public school in California. And he was there and and they kind of were just bringing in different worldviews at school and Better than lecturing and giving a TED Talk, he decided to do kind of like an open Q&A. To get a bunch of kids in a gym to ask him questions about Christianity, to go from there. Because when it's interactive, the kids are more engaged, right? Um, And so he bribed them. Um, He said, I will give $10 to whoever in here has the best question. And a student, a girl stood up and said, why does Jesus hate gay people? That was the question. He's like, $10 is definitely going there. Um, Why does Jesus hate gay people? And his response was, "Let let me answer you exactly like Jesus. He says, let me ask you a question, and then I'll answer you. Would you ever die for someone that you hate? The student thought, would you ever die for someone that you hate? The student said, no. But Jesus died for his enemies. And so he began to explain the gospel of 
there's maybe something about the question you're asking that doesn't get to the heart of the issue. Maybe there's something about sin. Maybe there's something about the grace of God and the love of God. Maybe there's something about this thing that you don't understand. Right? Oftentimes, maybe if a question is a trap, if it's just for ammo, if it's just to score dumb points, we've got to be wise enough to ask better questions. That oftentimes expose the foundation or the presupposition that the person themselves are blind to. You've been asked this before. Do good Muslims go to hell? The question then would be, define for me what is good. Help me out with good. That's a tricky word. Do good Muslims go to hell? Good? There is none good but one. Right? You can have people all time judging you. Why are Christians so judgmental? Hmm. Sounds like you're kind of judging Christians. Am I wrong? What gives you the right to judge Christians with the same judgmentalism that you condemn them for? How about this? Based on what standard? You want to call God evil or Christians evil? That assumes a right and wrong. What standard of right and wrong are you basing that off of? Aren't, don't you have to borrow that from the Bible? So you're having to borrow from the Bible a standard of good and evil, right and wrong, in order to judge God and his people as good or evil, right or wrong? Sometimes, saints, listen to me, sometimes the best thing you can do is be like your master Jesus and ask a better question. It doesn't dodge what they're asking. It wrangles it back to the heart of the matter. Do you hear me? Does that make sense? This is what Jesus does. Now, verse 30 through 33 gets into this, what is the substance of how he approaches him? Here's what the question he asks. Was the baptism of John, which was a baptism of repentance, from heaven or man? Heaven. Is it God-ordained or is it a thing of man? Is he just a crazy out there? Is he from heaven or from man? Answer me. I love that Jesus puts people on the spot. We are such nice people that never put people on the spot, but Jesus does. He, He says... This is a crossroads. Make a decision. Answer me. And they discussed it with one another. Jesus is playing one man chess against a squad of checkers players. All right? So they, they huddle up and he says, tell me. And then they kind of, I could just see this in my mind. They're all putting their arms around. All right. If we say it's, it's from heaven, of all the people on the earth, Nobody listened to John less than us. If we say it's from man, everybody here thinks that dude's a prophet. Right? The implications would be, if John therefore is from heaven and a true prophet, what did John preach? Tell me if this is wrong. John preached, Jesus is the one to come. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John preached, Jesus is greater than John. So if John is from heaven, what does that say about Jesus? John taught that John was not worthy of Jesus. John taught that Jesus must increase and John must decrease. John taught that these chief priests, scribes, and elders were a brood of vipers... Who won't flee the wrath to come. That they were. John was preaching through baptism. Repentance. As a way to prepare people for Jesus. And this was the group of people. That never repents. They're too good of people to repent. They don't need no repentance. They're moral. They got it together. John was the one that cried so people would meet Jesus. He preached so people would meet Jesus. He called people to repent and prepared them to meet Jesus. So if John is a true prophet and you reject him, 
What does that say about you? What does that say about your judgment? Just help me out with that. This is in their huddle. They are discussing that Jesus has put them into a dilemma. That if they are honest about what they really feel about John, they will lose all of their street cred. And if they lie and, and say that John is from heaven, then it puts them in this weird place where they now have to accept Jesus. And so here's how they respond. I don't know. I don't know. We don't know. Really, you're the most educated people in the whole culture. You can't figure this one out? Like it's not rocket surgery. Right? You, don't, you don't have to have a PhD. Like, help me out here. Most edu- Do you imagine the amount of humility it had to be? And we're the smartest people out here? No idea. We don't know where that John's from. From somewhere. I don't know. I'm not into geography. Don't know where he's from. I don't know. They respond, listen to this, with a pretend pseudo-agnosticism. A fake agnosticism. Agnosticism is basically from two roots that means no knowledge. I don't know. Which it, it, they are a bunch of fakes that will turn your skin green. Their answer of I don't know is a cute way to ignore evidence and not get real with the possibility and the conclusions of who Jesus is. They have a veneer of ignorance that they use to avoid Jesus, to dodge who Jesus is. And trust me, I think that if you're witnessing it all in your life as a Christian right now, you hit this. You run into this all the time. You share the gospel with someone of what Christ did on the cross to die for our sins and rise from the grave. You share the historical evidence of the scriptures. You, you, you share maybe some scriptures that have changed your life. You start to witness to somebody. They, you start to lay out church history. You start to lay out the cosmological argument for the existence of reality. You start to lay out truth. You present evidence to people about who Jesus is and you invite them and they they respond with, yeah, you know, I don't know. Like, I hear your argument, but I don't know. Here is what that answer really is saying. I hear what you're saying and while you are making valid arguments, I do not want to surrender my life. I desire something else. It's an issue of their will. They want their slavery to sin more than they want to come under our king. You can present all of the evidence from all the apologists from all over the world. But at the end of the day, they love darkness rather than light. And they will hide it with a pleasantry like I don't know. This is camouflage of their ignorance. They want to hide desires. But it's telling here, isn't it? That they're intimidated by the crowd in ways that Jesus isn't. They're stumped by a question in the way that he's just not going to be. And in so doing, their refusal to answer is itself actually an answer. That's a danger for all of us. It's a danger. So verse 33. I want this to kind of hit, if it will, and soak this up because I don't think that you would expect Jesus to do this. So they answered Jesus. We do not know. And Jesus said to him, 
neither will I tell you what authority I do these things. Jesus is not going to cast his pearls before swine. This is troublesome for me. I don't know if you, if you are listening to this the same way that I am. When we did the rich young ruler, right? And he says, sell all your stuff, come follow me. The guy walks away sad. Isn't there a part of you that thinks, chase him down, Jesus. Change the rules, Jesus. Like the rich young ruler is getting away, like run him down. Jesus lets the dude walk away. In this passage, he says, get honest with truth. Answer this question, heaven or men, let me know what's going on there. They say, we don't know. Okay, Jesus, give them another question. No. Answer this question or you're not going any further. Get honest about this question or, or we're done here. Does that strike you? And Jesus just says, I'm not going to play with your mask and your games. You don't have to be a genius to be a Christian. Thank God for some of you, right? There's a woot in the back. You don't have to be a genius to be a Christian. But you do have to be honest. You've got to be honest about your sin. And you've got to be honest about your Savior. They will not get real. And Jesus will not go further. Some of us have been confronted by Jesus about something, and we think we can circumnavigate that and get around that thing. But until we answer that thing that he's put over our lives, we are going no further. And here's maybe the the crutch of the issue for me. If John, if it's a question of whether John is from heaven or man, and John clearly taught that he, compared to Jesus, is the lesser. Heaven or man, when it comes to John... How much more critical is the question whether Jesus, is he just a man or is he from heaven? And if you can't answer the question about John correctly, the lesser, if you can't get simple 2 plus 2 math together, what hope do you have with calculus? If you can't answer this simple one, the lesser one, what makes you think that you're going to be even in position to answer this other one? And I think the more critical question is not about John at all. Because John's whole ministry was pointing to Jesus. The real critical question is, is Jesus just a man or is he from heaven? That's it. Does he have all authority in your life? Or is he just a moral teacher that you like quotes about on social media? Who's the authority in your life? Who is in charge? Will you answer that question honestly? Will you answer the question in in agreement with Scripture that Jesus was the Son of God sent from the Father to die for our sins, to teach us the way that we might be redeemed to Him, born again, saved, and to live forever with Him, where He has come to make all things right through His kingdom. Will you stand in agreement with how Scripture will resoundingly say, Jesus is from heaven, and He's come to usher heaven to earth? Or will you stand in disagreement with God and with Scripture, and stand here and say, everything south of an I don't know? That's the question. Can I pray for you? Maybe with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, and more importantly, the posture of your heart just before your king. If you're here and you've never called upon the name of the Lord to be saved, if you've never trusted the one that was sent from heaven to die for your sins, I want to invite you, even now, to trust Him and to repent of your sin and put your faith in Him. If you're here and you're a Christian, 
would you submit yourself again to your king? Turn from all of the cowardice of the crowds and just give your life all over again to your king. Would you do that? And just confess him as your authority in life. The one who gets to call the shots, the one that's in charge. That on any given issue, and in every season of your life, you're just going to let him lead. Brothers and sisters, would you do that? Dear Heavenly Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Bring heaven here in this space on earth. So those here who don't know you as their king. There's even one here, God, would you save them through your Holy Spirit, for your glory. And God, for those folks here that are family and that are your children, God, would you give them spines of steel, courage to advance your kingdom with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. God, would you make your saints in this house wise as serpents and gentle as doves? God, would you make them great at asking better questions? And God, would you make them faithful witnesses? No matter if that means a loss of money, a loss of job, or even a loss of their life, would you make them faithful even unto death? May you be glorified. In our lives, God, that's our prayer, that's our heart. And we pray it in the strong name of Jesus. Everyone said, Mm -hmm. amen. Would you stand and sing with us? Victory. 
benediction. May you go out this week and answer their questions in such a way that Jesus gets all the glory. Amen? Amen. Love you guys. We'll see you next week.